of Lecture 3 in the series, The Orthodox Church in Alaska. It's a continuation of a lecture of the monastic mission to Kodiak and the first fruits of the harvest, St. Herman, St. Peter, and the Aleut, and others. was that man in the Anyatjoch? Who was that Nakista, that reader, that companion? He's a Native American because St. Juvenali landed on the Kenai Peninsula without anybody else. And he needed a guide to get him through the mountains, across Iliamna, and down to the Bering Sea. And whoever it was knew how to swim. That eliminates Eskimos. Besides the fact that Yupiks not only having no swimming tradition would not have necessarily killed someone who spoke their language. So it's more than likely that this person did not speak their language, therefore was humanoid, uh, something that a person that looked human but wasn't really. The fact that he could swim and none of the hunters could requires us therefore to find someone from another culture, not a Yupik, with a swimming tradition. Well, I was priest at Tyonic once for a few years, and I started asking, do people in this community, Benina now, the west coast of Cook Inlet, have any tradition of swimming? And I asked the oldest man in the town rather than mess around with, because I wanted to know if this tradition went back to his boyhood or further, or whether was there any recollection of a swimming tradition? And this man, 80 years old, said, swimming, of course. I still swim. And he explained they were beluga whale hunters. And they could harpoon a whale and the whale would dive. And they would go in after it into Cook Inlet. <laughs> now, if you have that kind of hunting tradition, diving underwater after whales, you can sure swim like a seal. <laughs> So I think we can identify a Tanaina guide as having gone west with St. Juvenali. We may never know his name. But I think in icons of St. Juvenali, we should have him, and behind him, a, the icon of this Tanaina Indian man, who was his guide throughout Cook Inlet, who translated for him, more than likely. So he was his fellow evangelist, and who died at the hands of Yupik people at Guinahawk as well. So it's like we sing uh, eight stars of gold on a field of blue when we sing the Alaska State song. But one of those stars is a binary. We really, have nine, we really should have nine stars on our flag. So it's the same is true for St. Juvenali. When we commemorate him, we should also remember this nameless martyr. We have this in church history. We have St. Martyr so-and-so and those with him or and those with her. And in this case, we have St. Juvenali and the one who was with him. And it also provides us with yet another saint, a nameless one, unfortunately, but an Athabascan, an American Indian. Two points for the Indians here. I'm happy. Now, meanwhile, back in Kodiak, 
The oppression of, of Mr. Baranov continues until 1818. He's finally relieved in 1818 from his duties. St. Herman arrives in 1794, only three years after Baranov arrives and starts the city of Kodiak, and he lives until 1837. That means that St. Herman survives the Baranov regime by quite a bit, by what? Uh, almost 20 years, 19 years. What happens when Baranov is relieved? A man named Simeon Yanovsky is appointed governor of Alaska to replace uh, Alexander Baranov. And Father Herman, knowing that a new governor is coming, is very eager to meet him. Uh, he, he's aware that the previous governor, Baranov, probably left some memoranda explaining to him what troublemakers even this last remaining monk is. See, Father Yosef drowns, Father Makari drowns, Deacon Stephen drowns. Two other monks just give up. You know, it's house arrest and nothing but harassment in Kodiak. They just return home. It doesn't take long, actually. The last 20 or so years of St. Herman's life, he's the only one of the original missionaries left. He's the only one there who can report to the new governor what has been going on for the last 30 years. And this is the letter he writes, December 28, 1818. Letter from the monk Herman to Simeon Yanovsky. Your honor, as it is the nature of noble souls to everywhere demonstrate their virtues, so you, not having met me and not knowing me at all, except from what you have heard about me, he's not considering this probably as favorable, and knowing my humble self little or not at all, have not disdained in your so well-disposed letter to pay me a visit. He knows the governor is coming because Yanovsky is getting wants to find out also what has been going on in Alaska all this time. I shall be so bold as to say in simple words that I offer my wholehearted gratitude and consequent with your taking up your duties, I offer my most respect, respectful congratulations. May God speed and keep safe the ship in which you sail. Boy, was that necessary in these days. As you have been so gracious as to open to me the path of boldness and audacity to you, you see what kind of flowery language this monk on Spruce Island is capable of writing. It is now with the hope of your favorable inclination that I shall speak. The Creator has given to our beloved fatherland this region as a newborn babe, still without strength or knowledge of any kind, nor sense, which demands not only protection, but also because of its weak and tender age, support. But it is still not even capable of asking anyone to do this. And as the dependence of this people is a blessing of holy providence, given as it is into the hands for an unknown period of time to the Russian authorities here, and now given into your hands, for the sake of this, I, the most humble servant of the local peoples and their nurse, stand before you with bloody tears and write my request. Be a father and protector to us. We, of course, have no eloquence, although I think he's, he's demonstrated some here. But we say with the halting tongue of children, wipe away the tears of our defenseless orphans. Soothe the sorrows of aching hearts. Let us know what joy is like. Most gracious sir, in this brief description you with the subtlety of your intellect and your penetrating insight, may for yourself determine the full breadth and scope of these people's sorrows. 
We await expectantly to see what kindness the Creator will place in your heart on behalf of the poor. But we wait more in the expectation from our new master of new kindness, new joys, and new life for this region. Then sighs of gratitude and exciteful, joyful exclamations will break through the firmament and rise to the throne of the Almighty, wishing for you, our kind father and benefactor, all good health and a long life and happiness. And I, the last of the last, assure you that just as in the first instance before you had, been, had seen my humble state, you were willing to show such favorable inclination, I hope, that this will continue and so remain. Your, humble, your honor's humble and obedient servant, the elder Herman, dated 28th December 1818. He deserves this title, don't you think? Intercessor and defender of the oppressed. And Yanovsky comes to Kodiak and goes immediately, call, and St. Herman comes from Spruce Island to meet him in Kodiak. And they sit and Yanovsky says to him, how what has the condition been like here? Do you have any statistics? I already mentioned this. Do you have any papers? Can we can we document the decline of the Kodiak population? And St. Herman says, we weren't so much as given paper to keep baptismal, wedding, or death certificates. We had no means of doing this. The estimate is, however, that the Kodiak population de de uh, declined by something like 80%. It should not be inferred, however, that even this means the, de the demise of all those people. If you add it up, I can come to about 3,000 men removed from Kodiak Island and sent to such places as Urop Island in the Kuriles, just north of Hokkaido. Baranov had, had fur operations there uh, in the Kuriles from, uh, from the early 1800s. Several hundred more were sent to settle on the Kenai Peninsula and at least 200 more in each of the Pribilofs. The Pribilof Islands are Unangan speaking now, but the first settlers were draftees from Kodiak. Yakutat was occupied by Kodiaks, and a thousand kayaks were sent by Baranov in 1804 to attack the Klingets at Sitka. You see, Baranov had negotiated a land agreement with the Klingit, the one native Alaskan tribe that had land ownership as a concept in their culture. Clans owned land, and it could be purchased. So he bought land there to establish a trading post. Within two years, however, the Klingit burned it down using armaments pretty obviously supplied by Americans. <laughs> we often forget that the Europeans were also in conflict with each other and doing their best to make life difficult for each other. The English raided the Spanish, and the Spanish raided the English, and the Americans sold guns to everybody. And consequently, at this point, the Klingets burned down. It's, it's as if, we, we, I was just in Sitka, they have this film that they show at the visitor center about the Russians being oppressive. You can't be oppressive sitting inside a trading post. <coughs> You see, you're not a governing authority. You're not enslaving or oppressing or even taxing people. They were there to trade, but the Yankees convinced the Russians that this was no good for them, and they, I mean, the Klingets, that the Russians were no good for them and the Russians should be eliminated. The Russians burnt down the fort, killed the men, and took the women and children hostage and then made the British pay to ransom them. A British ship took the survivors to Kodiak and made Baranov pay higher ransom, so they made a profit on the deal. Everybody was making money on these kind of things. So, uh, exactly the circumstances of the destruction of the first trading post at Sitka are somewhat murky, but Baranov came back with a warship, the Neva, and a thousand Kodiak Aleut kayaks. 
who did most of the fighting in the Battle of Sitka, actually. <laughs> now, the, on one hand, the Kodiak people had to be rounded up to go a thousand miles by sea along the North Pacific Rim to get to Sitka. On the other hand, the Clinkets were another favorite enemy of theirs. <laughs> and so here was a chance to really get even with one of your least popular neighbors. You come in not only with a thousand men strong, but a Russian gunboat behind you. So needless to say, although there, there are islands in, in Sitka Harbor, one is named Aliutsky, and it's the place where the Aleut casualties of the Battle of Sitka are buried. As far as I know, there are no Russian casualties. The Marines who landed on the beaches at Sitka were native Alaskans. And some others died eating uh, red tide sea seafood. There's another burial site for them in another part of the historical park. But all this is available still at Sitka. The, um, the slideshow they show at the visitor center, uh, the, the rangers show with some embarrassment because they all know it's not true, but it's the only slideshow they have. But they've been showing it for 40 years. It might be time for a new one. <laughs> so if you challenge them or ask them, they'll all admit, yeah, 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 it's not quite that way, but that's what we have. And, it, and it's a rather colorful slideshow. It's all with watercolors telling you the life of the Clinkets and then the coming of the Russians and the Battle of Sitka and the great Clinket warrior Katlan, who, um, who, who surprised the Russians from behind, the Promyshleniki. They may all be Siberian natives, too, even on the Russian side, after all. But Baranov was there and got wounded in the battle. And Katlan went into battle uh, with a hammer, wearing a raven helmet. The raven helmet is, it still exists. It's in Sheldon Jackson Museum at Sheldon Jackson College. You can see the implements still of this battle. And there was a Klinkit fort, and they abandoned it. And the, the Baranov was able to establish not just a trading post, but a whole town on that site, which became the capital of Russian America, figuring very prominently in the next era after Baranov's retirement in 1818. Then there were, besides all those, Sitka was, by the way, an, right until the 20th century, an Aleut community. At the time of the sale of Alaska in 1867, two out of three residents in Sitka were Aleuts, they were not, even, not even Slavs. So when the Russians went home in 1867 after the transfer, Sitka stayed. Most of the people there were natives. They were running the shops and sailing the boats and running the, you know, the church and the rest, the school. But that's another story for, the, for our fifth lecture. And then down at Fort Ross, there were 200 more Kodiak Aleuts. When, when you add it up, and this is just the men, because Baranov didn't bother to take women and children along. You take that many people away from the island, and they're the providers in a subsistence hunting uh, economy, there's a lot of misery at home as well. So it's not only that all the guys are gone, but the, the surviving widows, women and children on the island uh, go without. There's real, real destitution left on the island. But all of this gets improved. Yanovsky is only a governor for a few years. He becomes so much under the influence of St. Herman uh, and spends as much time as he can at Kodiak visiting him that he eventually leaves, resigns his position as governor to enter a monastery in Russia. <laughs> you know, so maybe that's, that's the case of being even almost too successful because he was a good governor. But most of the governors after that, things kind of settled down. The government intervened in the appointing of company managers and had to approve them. And so you have eventually naval officers uh, running the company as, as uh, governors of Alaska and not board of trustees appointees like Baranov. Um, 
so the company evolves with time and things settle down. By the time St. Innocent comes in 1824 and he's priest in the Aleutian Islands till 18, uh, in Alaska till 1838, then he goes back to Russia and comes back and as Bishop of Alaska from 1840 to 1868. That's a long time. By that time, there's no conflict between clergy and, and uh, the government of Alaska, between the company. In fact, in 1818, the company charter expires too. Baranov, it's 20-year 20 20 incorporation. And then they, they have to send in reports, and the government decides whether they're going to give the company another 20 years' life, especially as a monopoly. Or are they going to open it up to competition, or they dissolve the company, or whatever. So the company had to put their best foot forward every 20 years. The company in 1816 hired a man named Gabriel Tikhmenev. And Tikhmenev is a company man hired to write the company story so that the company can get its corporation renewed. So again, it's important to know from whose point of view this report comes. Context and text, remember? Who's writing this and why are they writing it? What's their motivation? So you have Klebnikov, the best friend of Baranov, writing his biography. It's important to know it's a best friend's biography of a best friend, right? That, it's not that it's all lies, but he's only going to pick out the high points not the low. You never hear about the Aleuts being impressed into company service and sent all over the North Pacific. And I forgot Kauai. Baranov tried to open a trading post in Kauai and left Aleuts stranded in Hawaii. He had a personal um, correspondence with Kamehameha. But he tried to get a trading post there by siding with a rival faction in a coup d'etat against Kamehameha and got, wound up being kicked out of the islands. Actually, Baranov didn't do it. His, his representative, Dr. Sheffer, down there did. So it, it wasn't Baranov's doing, but Sheffer got involved in internal Hawaiian politics and wound up with the Russians being evicted from Hawaii. Otherwise, uh, Hawaii may just as easily have fallen to, into Russian hands as American or British. And Baranov would have been behind it. That's a different scenario, isn't it? But there is still a trading, there are still the remnants, although Hurricane Iniki went right through that area a few years ago. I was going to go to visit this site in Hawaii, and the hurricane came that night. So I never made it to Kauai, and I don't know what's left of the site. <laughs> but it was a state park. The people of Hawaii knew that there was a Russian presence, but it was a Russian presence a la Baranov, which means there are probably Kodiak Aleuts there with, a, with one Russian ambassador, so to speak, who was liaison with the government, with the royal government. It's a fascinating story. There's a, there are books about this. There's a publisher, Limestone Press, Kingston, Ontario. Uh, the books are almost all very expensive because they only print so many hundred. They don't expect a whole lot of people to be that interested to buy entire volumes of just Russia's Hawaiian adventure. So what's a, what, they went to Honolulu for a vacation, you would think. <laughs> but it's Baranov and the Aleuts at Kauai. And you could, Cook Inlet Books downtown carries all, almost all the uh, limestone press books that are still in print. There's one called The Russian Orthodox Mission to America, 1794 to 1837. In other words, the timeline of the life of St. Herman. It's interesting, it's translated, from, all these are translated from the Russian, and the Russian doesn't say the Russian Orthodox Mission to America. It says simply the Orthodox Mission to America. And it's extraordinary to read the correspondence of St. Herman and all the missionaries. They never call the church 
with an ethnic title. Of course, they're Orthodox and they're of Russian descent, but they specifically say they have come to bring the faith to the Americans. Of course, the Americans are the Native Americans in their eyes because they call the other guys from the lower 48 either the Bostonians or the Yankees, which is more our descendants. But in their case, when they call, what they call Americans are the Native Americans. And they always record, this is another note, they always record their names as in their original language and then their baptismal name. But they give equal dignity to both. It's another indication that they were not out to eradicate the, um, the language and were trying to respect the culture. Um, the last thing I should mention is Peter the Aleut because we have two accounts of the death of Peter the Aleut. Peter the Aleut is very obviously a Kodiak native impressed into company service more than likely by Kuskoff or one of his henchmen because he winds up in California. And we know 200 Kodiak natives were shipped to Report Ross to do sea otter hunting as far south as Baja. But all this is, they were considered trespassers on Spanish territory. But the, the Spanish government didn't have any trading posts that far north. They had no missions that far north. In fact, the last one, the furthest north, which I think is at Sonoma, was founded only after Fort Ross was founded to stake a Spanish claim to Sonoma County because the Russians actually got there first. Too bad, because Napa is right in between, you see. But the Russians never went inland. They were looking for a place to grow food, and they were trying to do it on the seacoast, which is damp and cold, and everything they planted rotted. They only had to go over a couple valleys, and they would have found some of the best agricultural land in the world, but they didn't go in there. And they were, had to negotiate with the Indians. They had treaties with the Pomo Indians of that area, and intermarriage, in, interestingly enough, began down there. You have Aleut Pomo and Siberian Pomo marriages. And we can tell this from the graves that have recently been excavated. There are not only records of it in the archives, the, they couldn't even tell five years ago where the graveyard was. But I think the University of Wisconsin got some kind of grant, and they went out there and made an educated guess, and they found graves that indicate actually very few Russians, but many Native Alaskans, both Aleut and Pomo. And then you can tell they were Orthodox because their baptismal crosses are still left. But the ground is so acidic, almost no human remains whatsoever. But they were able to um, identify all the graves. And over the last three years, crosses, new crosses were put up to mark all of them. And so now if you visit Fort Ross, you can look out beyond the fort, up the hill a bit. And the Orthodox Cemetery has been reconstituted with all the Orthodox crosses there and each of the graves marked. It was almost impossible to identify uh, who, what kind of man, man, woman, boy, girl, office, when it was a military man or somebody in the Navy, the buttons and certain meta metallic parts of the uniform are left. Those who are orthodox, we can assume that all of them were because it's consecrated grounds and the rest. But they found, they even mark it now in the souvenir shop, the Fort Ross Cross, which is a replica of one of the crosses they found during these excavations. But these are Aleuts. You see, native Alaskans who are way down there. And the, and the Sonoma mission is founded to counteract the, um, the presence of the Russians on the coast. Well, they were regularly, Aleuts were arrested by Spanish ships if they encountered Alaskan kayaks in, in California waters. And many times, 
small hunting groups were taken to Monterey, which was the capital at the time, and imprisoned. And then it was the old ransom game. How much will you pay me for your hunters back? And sometimes it was negotiated, and sometimes, because Rezanov went to California. Rezanov actually married a Spanish wife. So, so it's another story we don't have time for because it's not really directly involved in the mission. But in any case, um, there's all this commerce and contact. And the Russians said, well, we're not trespassing. We just got there first, so it's our territory. And we're the ones who negotiated the treaty with the Pomo. So, you know, and we're not, we came in peace. Let's, but there, was a, there were laws on both sides not to trade with each other. So they could trade with the Indians, but they couldn't trade with each other directly. It was illegal. In any case, um, it's in one of these hunting parties that it's, uh, it's more than likely. It happened often. This man whose Aleut name, Kodiak name, you can tell from his name he's Kodiak Alutek, Chongaganok, that Chongaganok is taken prisoner. And I don't, I don't believe personally that this was a matter of government policy, but we know that the Indians under Spanish rule were often physically abused, and killing an Indian was no big deal. At the same time, we're talking the 1700s, it's a, at the same time, there's still a bounty on Indians in Massachusetts. Scalping, you know, was an American custom, not an Indian one. You brought in so many scalps, you got paid. It's a bounty, like wolf tails or ears. The only good Indian is, you know. It's an American proverb. It comes from Phil Sheridan a century later, but the only good Indian is a dead Indian. And second graders know that. I've run the test throughout Alaska. Well, we're living in that time, you see. An Indian's life, a Native American's life, isn't worth very much. You know, you actually get paid for killing them on the other side of the hemisphere. So it's, it's a bit hypocritical to point the finger at those nasty Spanish, is what I'm trying to say here, because the same policy predominated throughout the Americas. In any case, I don't think that it was government policy to kill people or torture them to death. I suspect it was much more like um, some soldiers in the barracks you see, and this is just a hunch, some people disagree with me, but this man, Chung Aganak, was being tortured because they wanted to baptize him and he refused. He refused because he was already baptized. If he knew the creed, and he would have been baptized by Father Herman more than likely, or at least one of the other Valam missionaries. If he knew the creed, he knows you can't be baptized twice. And he would make the sign of the cross. I am a Christian. Those who were unfamiliar with orthodox practices, and I, at this early stage probably most were, especially the average uh, corporal sergeant or private, watch this alley, insist that he's a, a Christian, and then make the cross backwards. That may have even infuriated them or indicated to them that he was lying. And so they wanted him to renounce, that he, to, to accept baptism, and he wouldn't. Well, it's the time, not, after, after all, the Inquisition is not in California. We don't have uh, any of that going on there, but it's not, it's not that far removed from that kind of treatment, after all. And so, according to the story, reported in two separate letters, one in which this man is called Peter, and one in which he's called by his alley name, Chongaganak. But that's quite, quite common in all our archives, to either use either name or sometimes both. And apparently under torture, this man died. And when St. Herman heard of this, he said, what was his Christian name? And Janowski told him. His name was Peter. And St. Herman rose, 
faced the icons in his icon corner, crossed himself and said, Holy new martyr Peter, pray to God for us. It constitutes a kind of canonization. And I remember discussing this with Professor Verhevskoy at seminary. Uh, by definition, a martyr is considered a saint. It's simply kind of automatic. Someone who dies for the faith is a saint. So Juvenali is canonized by virtue of his own shedding of blood, and Peter the Aleut as well. Now there are people who, who have said, what documentary evidence do we have besides these letters? Actually, unless we, someone went to Mexico and dealt with the unindexed <laughs> Spanish archives and miraculously took about a needle in a haystack, found somewhere some reference to this. Personally, I don't think this was something that they would have reported. If it was an unofficial act by a, by a band of soldiers torturing an Indian off duty, so to speak, not because the governor signed an order, beat him to death or torture him until he admits that he's not a Christian so we can baptize him, because there were other Aleuts in the company who somehow escaped this treatment because it's from the others that we learn of the incident. So the others eventually get ransomed as was usual, and the existence that this incident of the one being tortured comes only through oral tradition. Uh, why we should doubt it because people only say so, and the letter is written a few months later, and, re and St. Herman receives these two reports as the sole surviving member of the Balaam mission. This message is continued on side two. Why we should doubt it because people only say so and the letter is written a few months later and, and St. Herman receives these two reports as the sole surviving member of the Valam mission. Because it's about 1814. The other monks have either died or gone home. And who else are they going to report the death and possible martyrdom of, an, of a Christian but to the head of the mission? So St. Herman gets these reports. And he talks to Yanovsky about it. So Yanovsky passes the reports on. This has happened years before. There's no reason to send an, a protest to the Spanish ambassador in St. Petersburg. What are you going to do? You know. And I don't think it's an, my, my, my own belief is that it's not an official act. Now, one other problem. In one, in one repeating of this story, it says, it says that the Jesuits did it. Well, we all, there were no Jesuits in California. But my, in my own time in Russia, I realized that the term Jesuit is simply the pejorative term for Roman Catholics. All Roman Catholics are Jesuits. I mean, people just talk that way, as if every Roman Catholic priest is another Jesuit. So this may be the explanation for that kind of garbling. But I have no reason to believe that if the oral tradition of the native peoples and the written record, even though it's somewhat skimpy, relays this incident, because it, these things we know in context, again, Aleuts were there. Aleuts were regularly arrested and taken into custody for what was considered trespassing because they went as far as Baja California. They were hunting south of San Diego. They were hunting south of San Diego for sea otters under the, uh, during the company period, during this time. And we know that. They were sent there, that they were ordered to do. And then the Spanish said, go back to Fort Ross, you don't belong here. And sometimes they simply arrested them and hauled them into jail. That happened lots of times. There are plenty of records of that. So why should we doubt that if Native Americans were treated that way anyway, that an Orthodox Native American might not have been treated that way? And uh, certainly St. Herman believed it.
although uh, that doesn't mean that Saint, Saint Innocent believed wrong things about Saint Juvenali. So just because a saint says so doesn't make it automatically true. But again, it's a matter of piecing it all together in context. You have this bit of information and this bit of information. You piece it all together. It's not nearly as firm and as well documented as the martyrdom of Hiram Monk Juvenali. But on the other hand, as far as I'm concerned, there's, it's a substantial body of information, just piecing it together in context again, that this man, Peter the Aleut, really was martyred in and around Monterey, not by clergy, and certainly not by Jesuits, but by uh, Roman Catholic soldiers who may have at that time had no intention of killing him, actually, you see. But it happened, he died. He, he lost too much blood and he died. And consequently, we have a native Alaskan martyr. In addition to the previous Native American martyr who actually died, and we can actually have, we actually in a sense have just as much corroboration for that. The one who died nameless, whose name we may never know, known only to God, he's sort of our unknown soldier. The Danaina uh, Indian from, Tan from this area, certainly, who died, who died at the hands of Yupik people at the mouth of the Cuscoquim River at the village of Guinehawk together with St. Juvenali. So we have these martyrs, and then we have St. Herman, who left Kodiak sometime between 1810 and 1814. While Baranov was still alive, St. Herman got out of town. There were three incidents reported where either, not Baranov himself, but his, his employees, his, his henchmen, tried three times to kill St. Herman. So th with these booby traps going off and these ambushes being plotted, the man of prayer doesn't want to live in the midst of all this turmoil. And there's very little he can do as one single aging man, probably by now at the age of 60, to prevent the abuses of Baranov and his men. He retreats to Spruce Island, which he names Nuvalam, and where he sets up, a sm first lives in a Barabara, an Aleut-style sod house, and then eventually builds a skeet, a small uh, prayer chapel. And then during the epidemic, the smallpox epidemic in the late 1820s, he takes in the children who were left as orphans. He ministers to the people who are sick and dying. The smallpox came also on a ship from the lower 48. The Russians actually had vaccine, surprisingly. It was available uh, at this time already. Smallpox vaccine had been had been, but most of the people refused to receive it. They still trusted more in the traditional shaman, medicine man approach, and consequently died. It's a sad thing to say, but among the Klinkets, it was only in the 1830s when smallpox raged there, and the people who received inoculation from St. Innocent survived, and those who rejected white man's medicine and went to their shaman died. People said, there's something to the way these people do things. It's not a perfect uh, inducement to conversion and, adapt and cultural adaptation and change, but it worked that way. It, it simply did. Uh, on the Yukon River, uh, much later on, when another epidemics, I don't think this is, very, this is very appropriate at all, but there was another epidemic like that, and we have literally Jesuits on the Yukon saying, this may work to our advantage. So St. Herman never would have said such a thing. You know, St. Innocent certainly never did. But um, disease is a major, it was something that someone mentioned to me before. They asked what factor disease might have played in the reduction of the population 
especially in the Promyshlenic period? And th my answer was, I have no idea. I have not read in anybody's reports about epidemics during that time. We know there were in Kodiak, and we know that the first two came on ships, visiting ships brought germs that hadn't been there before. And the smallpox that came from the lower 48 spread around Kodiak and killed a lot of people. People had no immunity. They died within a few days. And the orphans moved to Spruce Island where St. Herman ran a school. Now Father Gideon, the, the guy who came as the Tsar's investigator, stayed in Kodiak for four years and learned to speak Alutic. In fact, he's the first person to devise an alphabet for a native language. And he actually ran a school in Kodiak that at one point peaked at a, an enrollment of over 100 native students who were learning to read and write in Russian and in Alutic, and they sang the Lord's Prayer at liturgy in Alutic at the Kodiak Church, 1802. So if you want to know the founder of bilingual education in Alaska, it's not even St. Innocent. It started even earlier, less than 10 years after the arrival of the missionaries, there was bilingual education in Kodiak, Alaska, uh, inspired by and, and engineered by Father Gideon. Father Gideon left. He was only here on an inspection team. St. Herman took over the educational work. So once he had the orphanage and the school, he had a, an Aleut woman actually of mixed parentage, Russian or Creole, they called it, Siberian and native Alaskan. Her name was Sophie Vlasov. It's a common name still in Tetlik on Prince William Sound. Mrs. Vlasov was sort of the, the matron in charge of the girls at the school because that was something outside of St. Herman's expertise. <laughs> and she taught them what for the 19th century were traditional girls we could call home ec classes. I mean, these girls had to be able to be good wives someday, so they had to know how to cook and sew and do these things. Mrs. Vlasov taught that and was the successor to Father Gideon as the bilingual teacher. So we have not, it was not only St. Herman by himself, but he had native Alaskans assisting him in taking care of the, the students, the kids, who moved into houses, planted gardens, raised enough food to feed themselves. Of course, Bruce Island is a wonderful place. There's, there's a stream on the beach in which salmon still spawn. So you can get fish in the summer, and, and he grew potatoes and other, well, Russian kind of crops, potatoes, carrots, turnips, things that grow fast and in a cold, damp climate. But enough to uh, use seaweed as fertilizer, one of the first to experiment with the uses of seaweed in, in um, adding nutrients to the soil at Spruce Island, and lived for the rest of his life there with these children in, in his care, with the help of other native Alaskans who assisted him in caring for the children. And it was his life, his pious life, his prayer life, that I think ultimately confirmed people in orthodoxy. The people had the stories, remember? And, we, and now they had the gospel story. They had songs and music that derived from their stories. But in the liturgy of the church, they also had songs and hymns that derived from the stories. They had a master of ceremonies and Kodiak, the person who knew how to do the ceremony, sing the songs in the right sequence, kind of knew the rubrics. He was called the Gashak. Today, to this day, that's the name for an Orthodox priest. It's simply been transferred over, the guy who knows the rubrics. <laughs> the guy who knows what to sing next. <laughs> and then there was the shaman, remember. The shaman, it was believed, had this ability to foresee the future and heal the sick. It was he, it was believed, who had been to the spirit world and had this 
ecstatic personal experience of the realities about which the sacred stories spoke. And that's exactly what they saw in St. Herman. I'm not saying St. Herman was a shaman, but you see the roles are parallel. If in the past the shaman was the one who could heal the sick and prophesy the future and deal effectively with spiritual realities that the rest of us mere mortals had only stories about, who had entered into that experience more intensely and to kind of have this personal uh, charisma, then if the shaman uh, served that purpose in the old structure, St. Herman fulfilled it in the new. If it wasn't the Baranov and or even uh, the other monks nearly so much that confirmed the Kodiak Aleut people in their orthodoxy as the example of one pious monk. He not only defended them at great personal cost, but he educated them and taught them. And more than, he, he more than educated and taught by his words, he educated and taught by his example. And the miracles of healing that began occurring during his life and the prophecies he made about individuals and people and communities during his life that were later fulfilled. And then even more so, the miracles that be of healing in particular that began occurring at his grave. Now, from that time forth to this very day, this confirmed the people in their orthodoxy in a way that could not have been predicted. You can make the, the conscious parallel, sacred stories, gospel, legends, uh, lives of saints, because the lives of saints do the same kind of thing, don't they? They corroborate that if you live by the gospel, this is the kind of person you become. <laughs> so the lives of the saints, the stories of the saints, the hymns of the saints, the Menaean, you know, in the singing of the songs, the festomene, in the celebrating of the feasts, great and holy Pascha, Holy Week. Now he was not a priest, but you know, most you can do 95% of all the Holy Week services. You leave out the litanies, but all the hymns get sung, all the prayers get said. St. Herman could have a pretty decent Pascha, actually. You still go around the chapel singing, Christ is risen, you know. So they had with him a, a, pretty, a pretty complete, as best it could be, monastic prayer life. They saw the fruits of this in him. If we said at the beginning that Orthodox missions were founded by laymen, and that it points to the fact that laity must have a responsibility for the carrying on of the faith, especially in the telling of the stories, certainly within their own families. Then St. Herman is a reminder that the stories aren't enough unless they produce what they were meant to produce, and that is personal sanctity. Righteous and holy people. And most of us don't attain to that. In the history of Kodiak Island, at least for the first century, they could only point to one. But it's what St. Seraphim Masarov, a contemporary of St. Herman, who had the same spiritual father for a while back in Russia, Abbot Nazari, Igumenos Lazarios. What, if you save yourself, St. Herman said, uh, St. Seraphim said, a thousand around you will be saved. The legacy of St. Herman is he saved himself. He, he was true to his monastic vocation, and not a thousand, but ten. 20,000 have been saved. When I first arrived in Old Harbor in 1970, every family had a Father Herman story. It was the oral tradition being perpetuated. It had to be kept alive. If we don't tell the story, the Aleut people felt, he'll be forgotten. It's up to us to make sure his life, his words, and his deeds will be remembered. Aleuts wrote down the life of St. Herman in the 1890s on the centenary of the mission. 
they were asked to by the abbot of Valam. The abbot sent letters to Kodiak and said, anybody remember St. Herman? Did your grandfather tell you any stories? And there were men who were still alive in the 1860s who were little boys in the 1830s who went to visit him at Monk's Lagoon. Konstantin Larionov says, I sat on his bed. I didn't know it was a bed, it was a piece of board. Actually, it was his blanket. It's what, what he covered himself with. He had a stone for a pillow. He describes the cell and the ascetic life of St. Herman on the island. But more than that, they talk about the miracles that have continued to flow from his relics since that time, and every family had a story. And then he was canonized. Everything got written down, at least up to that point. And it's, in my experience, they stopped telling the stories. It's as if our mission has been accomplished. It's all been written down and recorded. The whole world knows he's a saint. We kept his memory alive for 130 years, and now, whew. So you have to go and ask, don't you have any St. Herman stories? Well, now that you ask, you see, but it's not something I as a reader and a first year seminarian would go house to house and it was one of the first things people had to tell. I should tell you about what happened to my mother. I should tell you what happened to my father. I should tell you what happened to me. And these are mostly unrecorded stories. They're not the stories that have been printed anywhere. And there are many. So if people say, oh, that Orthodox Church, you know, they're this and they're that. Nobody cared what people said. It was just slander as far as they were concerned. We know holy people walked here and they did things these guys can't imagine. You see one man, one Orthodox Christian, living his Christian life to the fullest, to the max, giving up everything, didn't just save himself and not even a thousand, but 10 or 20 or 30,000 others have been saved because he's the confirmation that it's all somehow true. That if you take this seriously, it works. And you become a real person in the process. The kind of human being God intended you to be. Not according to a, to a mythic pattern or paradigm, but according to the criteria and the measure of the fullness of the stature of Christ. You become a Christ-like person. And St. Herman's stories exemplify his humility and his forgiveness and his compassion, his mercy, and ultimately his great love for the people, which continues to inspire native people of Alaska and by now people from all over the world to this day. It's a reminder that this is the real missionary force, not pamphlets we put out, not TV shows we produce, but an Orthodox Christian living the Orthodox Christian life in love and service to God and man. That's the example of St. Herman. And whether people live up to it or not, whether they themselves attempt it or not, you can't tell a Kodiak Aleut that the Orthodox faith ain't no good. Them's fighting words. And we know it not just because our mama said so, which is enough for most people already, but because we have the proof in Appa Herman. And when you ask people, where did you get this custom? As I think I mentioned a couple days ago. You say, where did you get this custom? And they say, Apangchuk taught us. Little grandfather. And that means St. Herman. You don't mess with that. <laughs> That's the way we always. There's the overlap between the pre-modern traditional culture and our own. The oral tradition kept it alive. And the oral tradition is still there. And we need to encourage it, foster it, and maybe well, you see, if we document it, we almost take it out of circulation. <laughs> That's the trade-off. And yet, if we don't document it, it gets lost. 
And if we do get documented, more people hear about it. So that's our situation. You will probably not, even as Orthodox Christians, hear a lot of St. Herman stories unless you begin asking on the pilgrimage some year, why are you here? And, they, and people will begin to say, I came to give thanks to God and to pray at the grave of St. Herman because, and there's a miracle story behind that. Half the people at the pilgrimage will have that. It's worth the trip, as they used to say about Dunkin' Donuts. It's worth the trip. <laughs> because it's, it's our Alaskan holy land, and when you walk in that forest on Spruce Island at Monk's Lagoon, you have the sense that this is a sacred place. Uh, Father Dragas, the Dean of Holy Cross Seminary, came here maybe 20 years ago, and I took him to Spruce Island, and he was overwhelmed with this, the sanctity that he felt there. And he said to me, I have only ever felt this holiness, this sacred presence once before in my life. And I said, where, Father? And he said, at the tomb of our Lord in Jerusalem. But there are no marble buildings or, built or tombs there. There's just that forest, as the Akathis said, permeated with your prayers. It's a place like Mecca. All Muslims have to go there if they can. All Orthodox Alaskans should at least once in their life make a pilgrimage to Spruce Island. I invite you all. Thank you. <laughs>